Welcome to Saltivation. The Saltivation Show is a podcast series featuring the leading voices in salt, where we talk about the issues and strategies to help you make sense of state and local tax. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Saltivation Podcast. Thank you for being with us. Today, we are excited to have Brad Scott here. He is the Director of Finance for a small business, Halstead Bead, located in Arizona, and a business leader in advocating for sanity and sales tax. Who would have thought? What's unusual about Brad is that he not only understands the minutia of state and local tax, but he also sees a path forward to making compliance simpler for small businesses. Thank you, Brad, for being with us here today. Well, thank you for having me. Well, Brad was recently a guest on the Tax Foundation for a webinar discussing the issues bearing down on businesses today when it comes to collecting and remitting tax in our post-Wayfair environment, which is hard to believe that it was over five years ago. We will include a link to the show note in the show notes for that conversation because it is an excellent one. And we want also love the Tax Foundation and want to plug them. Um, but today, you'll hear a brief mention of those issues. But we really want to kind of focus on those solutions that you've proposed and kind of have come up with. And so, Brad, if you would, um, could you please share with us a brief background on Halstead Bead and kind of what led you to get us to where you are today? Sure. Well, my in-laws started the company back in 1973. It was uh, an anthropological interest on my father-in-law's part that led him to bring African trade beads into his workplace. And uh, he was just going to come in for a show and tell, but it really turned into a a sale opportunity. And so he sold all the beads to the, the ladies he worked with and then brought some more in and sold those too. And um, he and my mother-in-law sat down and decided that they were going to try to do what a lot of Americans do, which is take a risk on themselves and start a small business. And over the course of the next couple of years, they went from selling in his office to selling at craft shows to selling through a mail order catalog business model. And um, in the 1990s, they determined that the mail order catalog model was probably not going to be the future and they started a website and since the mid-90s we've basically moved all of our business from various uh, entry points the phone fax email uh, just to online through our website and now it's about 100 percent over the internet we sell into all 50 states we sell into 26 other countries and before i forget to tell you what we sell we sell jewelry components to other small businesses that uh then turn around and sell necklaces earrings you name it as gifts or uh personal mementos because we sell parts we really didn't have a retail outlet we were always wholesale and so uh in 2018 when this decision came down we didn't believe it was going to happen the way it did uh it was our ignorance as to the past of sales tax and and quill and complete auto and all of the cases that that were prior to it and um (laughs) yeah and so we didn't know anything about those we just knew that quill was coming and of course i was thinking no taxation without representation in the Boston Tea Party, but that's not what happened. And we very quickly started negotiating with ourselves how we were going to manage sales tax. And obviously, we had to learn our obligations. We had to make our software compatible. We had to update all of our processes. And what we determined over the course of the nine months, really, after the Supreme Court decision was made, was that we were not capable and that legislation was necessary and that obviously somebody was going to be doing it. And when I started reaching out to find out what, uh, what was in the works, it quickly be, it quick, quickly became obvious that really nothing was in the works. And 
I found myself kind of falling into this role of, of advocating for sales tax simplification and uniformity almost by happenstance. And uh, that's the background. Well, we love that you're doing it, Brad. I mean, you are a pioneer and willing to put your neck out. And I know you are very compliant, but we appreciate that advocacy because it does take the word of small business to really explain to legislators the consequence of laws. And it's tough when there's 50 states and 13,000 locals, and it's just a lot for any business to manage, but a small business, especially a smaller to medium business. So it is, it is. And I I think you just kind of hit on one thing. It's on our part, we didn't know about Quill. We didn't know about Complete Auto. We didn't know about the Pike balancing test. We didn't know about a lot of these historical precedents that were the foundation of, of tax policy. And our ignorance is, is, was our Achilles heel at, the point, at that point in time. But it was basically a lack of awareness on our part of what was going on outside of the business. And I think there's an e- equal lack of awareness on the part of policymakers about what actually goes on within a small business and the challenges that we face and how how difficult they can be and what kind of resource drain they present. And that's really been the key focal point of, of our advocacy is bringing to bear the actual resource that we have to put into this and then helping legislators to understand what a reasonable expectation is so that we can comply but also serve our customer base. And I'm on the call the Colorado Governor's Task Force to simplify Colorado sales tax. And I speak on behalf of taxpayers and I represent uh, the CPA community. And some of the things I always per, you know, put out to legislators is because they'll give the comment, well, software handles it. And yes, software is a great tool, but it's how it's installed. It's based on your facts, all the things. It is not a plug and play you know, situation. So there's a wild misconception that software is the south, you know, to fix the problem. And it's couldn't be further than the truth. Well, software solves a lot of problems, but it also creates other other problems. And oftentimes those are unintended consequences. consequences. Right. And I, I just, this morning, I kind of had a thought. Um, we sell one single product code. So uh, taxability information code TIC. So we are limited to one single item, but we have 4,700 SKUs. Now right. imagine we had 4,700 different SKUs and they are varied across item codes. There are 440 different item codes for physical goods. So yes. just multiplying those two things by each other, you're looking at over 2 million different potential permutations. And then you multiply that out by 12,000 different taxing jurisdictions. And you're looking at almost 25 billion different permutations. That's a lot of, of data to have to pour through. And it has to be done with software under the, cir- the current circumstances. But the software that we have had, that we have used in the past was either too, ex- well, what we did use was inadequate for what we needed. Um, uh-huh. And when we looked at alternatives, it was just too expensive for us to be able to afford. Well, and in that, yeah. on that token, what reality and kind of dollars and cents did this Wayfair kind of decision create for you? And I know you know, you've put numbers kind of behind, you know, what costs the company just as you, a single business, you know, selling one product, you know, what has that cost you, you know, in financial means and just even time? So there are a couple of different things that you have to consider. There's first understanding what your obligations are to roughly 12,000 different taxing jurisdictions. So my wife and I devoted 15 months of time to researching what the expectations were, not just in the States, but also at the local level. 
Um, obviously, that's an, it's an incomplete job. I don't think it could ever be complete, but we, we devoted an enormous amount of time to that just to be able to really get a, a good square understanding of what we needed to do. 15 months of my wife's and my time, is that's a lot of money. <laughs> um, but at the same time, we also had to bring in software. And fortunately, we have an in-house programmer, so he was able to cut down some, on some of the the programming's cost because when you outsource it, it's it's a lot more by the hour than when you insource it. But um, the software that we were told was free and easy for this solution, uh, as by means of the Supreme Court and the decision, it cost us almost thirty thousand dollars to integrate. So it was never free and it was never easy. Um, the free part was dispelled with that thirty thousand dollar bill to turn it on and implement it and integrate it. The easy part was the fact that over the next year and a half, we received thirty five notifications from states in the streamline streamline sales tax group as well as another state so 36 different notifications in total that that software company was failing to report or remit on our behalf um, that has a lot of consequences and then beyond that um, just managing exemption certificates i mentioned earlier that we're a wholesaler we've got to manage exemption certificates to ensure that whenever we are audited that we can prove to the various departments of revenue that our transactions are tax exempt so um, what does that mean for us? It means over the last five and a half years, we've put about 11,700 hours into compliance. It's cost us $429,000 and we've collected about $168,000. So we're spending $2.55 for every dollar that we collect. And that's, that's not sustainable. That just needs to be addressed. Well, yeah, thank you for, thank you for sharing those numbers. Cause I think, you know, as we had talked about earlier, you know, policymakers aren't necessarily thinking about what is actually involved in the process, have probably never filed a sales tax return. Right here in our in our home state, mine and Judy's home state of Colorado, the I remember the very first time I filed a Colorado return, me as a CPA who had had, you know, over 10 years of experience at that time was just like, I don't know how to do this, right? There's 01-001 is the state code for Denver. So I need to put that there for the RTD and the cultural district and the state tax, but it's not going to collect Denver. But what happens if I don't have that five-digit code? Like you can't get there. I I know what I'm doing and I don't know what I'm doing, right? And so I think those numbers are are real. And, you know, I think it's, it's very valuable that you've kind of done that work to identify those numbers and are out there sharing that. And so then on that, you've, you know, and we've already kind of even touched on it here, is you've mentioned the need for greater simplicity in tax policy. So how does, in your mind, simplicity drive greater compliance well, I think there's two parts there. Since the Wayfair decision, and it's it's been five and a half, it's not quite five and a half years, but it's close enough. We've received a single notification from a state that we may or may not have a compliance obligation. That's Pennsylvania. So for the other 48 states, the District of Columbia, Puerto Rico, and any other territories that we may or may not have a compliance obligation to, we don't know. Um, now, I do know, but that's because I've been proactive about it. Now, from a business perspective, I do not have relationships with all 50 different state departments of revenue um, 
you know, I have one with the state in there or the Department of Revenue in Arizona, but I have a physical presence here. So that, that makes sense. The other 49 states, I'm not paying attention to them. And frankly, I, you know, if you start thinking about the sheer volume of businesses that are out there, I question how any state Department of Revenue could potentially or even possibly reach out to all of the businesses in every single state outside of their own territory. It's just not a fair ask. And so um, when you start talking about the sheer volume of communication that's not occurred, how many businesses are unaware of the Wayfair decision? How many state departments of revenue have been unable to reach out to those businesses? When you start talking about streamlining communications just by itself and changing the way that businesses correspond with all of those other state departments of revenue, you are now are going to bring awareness up. And with awareness, you've got greater compliance. And mm -hmm. so through greater compliance, you're going to get greater revenue draws. I mean, it, Logically, I think that's the case. Maybe that's not, but the fact of the matter is, if I know have I have a compliance obligation to the state of Connecticut, I'm going to comply. But if I don't know that Connecticut's even looking at me, then I don't know that I'm supposed to be complying. And when you start thinking about the volume of of communication that's occurring versus the volume of communication that would absolutely have to occur for businesses to be completely aware, cutting down on that communication is going to be key to driving compliance and, and improved numbers of businesses that are on the right side of the law. But I thought streamlined sales tax was going to solve all that, Brad. Well, streamlined sales tax, I mean, it's a 20-something-year-old project, and you know they've got 24 states that are right. members. Tennessee is not a full member, though I'm not really sure what that means because I, I think for all intents and purposes as a business, they are a full member. But since the Wayfair decisions, there's not another single state that's ever adopted it. And what you fail to, I mean, not what you fail, but I think what, what doesn't get considered is the fact that the five largest states in the country by population and by business, and I'm talking about California, New York, Illinois, Florida, and Texas, none of uh -huh. them is a member of Streamline. Right. So think about the number of businesses within those states uh -huh. and think about the number of relationships outside of those states that are going unattended to. Right. Um, and so Streamline, I think Streamline set out with a good intent, mm -hmm. but I think the big critical error for Streamline is that they relied on that software piece that we discussed earlier to be the yeah. solution and right. it's part of the solution. But it, actually, if it's good luck policy, it shouldn't be part of the solution. It should be, um, it should be a beneficial tool, but not a necessary tool. Right, right, right. Good point. No, and actually those states you mentioned represent 10% of the U.S. economy. Mm -hmm. So you have a lot of customers in that state, whether you're in that state or not. And you don't want to give those up because that's a good market, you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's a really fascinating thing. I mean, when I got into this field in 1997 or something, I remember the streamline coming around and I thought, oh, you know, well, here we are, 30 years almost. And it, ha it has helped. It has helped, but it, we just haven't got enough traction with other governments. And I don't see that, like you said, I don't see it coming. So yeah. we've got to figure out better ways to make that manageable for taxpayers. Well, and I think, I think what's really critical is the way this is discussed is oftentimes about businesses and tax policy. It's not about people. It's not about constituent businesses. And, and what do I mean by that? If I have an issue here as a small business in Arizona, I go to my local representative or my local senator who operates down in Phoenix at the state capitol, and I explain to them I got a problem, and I'm on a one, you know, first name basis with them, and we can discuss the problem and solutions. Um, they recognize me as their constituent small business, and when they think about policies within the state of Arizona, they're sensitive to our needs. 
But when you start talking about businesses outside of Arizona, you're no longer talking about constituents, you're talking about revenue sources. And I think the reality is that if, if legislators within the state of Arizona would recognize that their constituent small businesses are suffering under policies derived out of the other 49 states, and those mm-hmm. states reciprocated with that rep, uh, recognition, we might start getting better solutions that were designed around improving the conditions that small businesses and the people behind them have to right. face. Right. Well, even when Colorado instituted, so our wafer law became immediately effective on July 1 of 2018 because our doing business statute allowed for this. We just went, when it got trounced by Quill, we lowered our parameters and said, we'll do this thing called location in common. And when Wayfair came around, we're like, we're allowed by statute, because it's already in place, to collect on destination. So we had a pivot. We said that's effective November um, is when we decided we're going to go for it. But we gave client uh, customers tax rates till July 1 of, uh, June 1 of 20, the following year, 2019. But even we didn't know what to do with it as a state. Mm-hmm. And I remember our department revenue came to the legislator and asked for more full-time equivalents to process all these new licenses. Mm-hmm. And we them. So we have asked for this giant volume of intake of new taxpayers and we can't even handle it as a government. So, you know, that's why I think we've seen some of the thresholds go up. We don't need the $20 item sold a hundred of $20 item taxpayer to register in our state. Mm-hmm. So I think that speaks to thresholds. You know, mm-hmm. we have a threshold in Colorado where if you owe $300 of sales tax, you have to file every month. Mm-hmm. Why? Who needs $300 every month? Yes, it adds up. But that also costs a lot of uh, money to file all those returns. Mm-hmm. But we have such disparity in that. I'm almost an advocate of filing every month, but make it cheaper, right? Because it's easier to reconcile if you just file each month. So we have this disparity. I remember when I got in this world doing some of these return by paper. paper. That's how I even got into sales tax. Filing returns manually, making copies, getting with the checks, sticking it in the envelope, going to the post office to make sure I didn't get late notices. So for late filings, I didn't want to put it in our mail on our corporate office. I didn't know if they were going to file it timely, right? So I'm getting every single envelope date stamped as a protection. And then I remember things were going online and ACH and payments had to be due. And I thought, how do you handle that when two states want it, the other states want to check? And we've mm-hmm. seen that change over the years, but even that is not efficient. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think looking at what are the costs of the business is only part of the equation. It's what's the cost of the Department of Revenue. And really, if you think about yeah. it, the tax efficiency, you know, what is what is the difference between collections to a Department of Revenue and the expenses meant to administer the policies that drive those those revenues? Yeah. And how do you maximize the delta between those two so that you're seeing the maximal gain for the state and for the local departments? And I think there are a lot of ways that this could be done. Um, it's just a matter of getting the states to buy into it. And, you know, We've talked about a little bit of solutions here and there, and the reality is I've been working with the American Catalog Mailers Association now for several years, and I work with the National Taxpayer Union as well. Um, And what you have there, the American Catalog Mailers Association is an association of businesses that have, you know, businesses figure out how to do things efficiently. And we look at what the constraints are that we're facing and how do we maximize efficiencies to drive down those constraints and benefit our customer base. So. Sometimes those solutions on the face of it seem pretty simple, and then you bump into the law. And that's why I've also been really happy to work with the National Taxpayers Union, because that's where I see both both things coming into effect. I see, as a business person, I know what's going to work. And if it's something that I'm not familiar with, I can talk to another business and see what their best practice is, and then com- you know consolidate those ideas. But then you also have to worry about the constitutionality of it. And that's where working with the National Taxpayer Union 
Foundation comes in because they understand the tax ramifications, but also the legal ramifications. And when you marry those two together, business leaders and policy leaders, you start to come up with a really good list of solutions, which is what we've done over the last several years. And every solution that we have pulled forward has something that's been done already. They all have precedent, which means we're not trying to recreate the wheel. We're not trying to do anything new or unusual. We're just trying to bring policies, best practice policies from other areas of the law into sales tax compliance so that states, local jurisdictions, and businesses can all benefit and um, you know benefit financially, but also benefit with the, the time and use of their resources. Yep. So what do I mean by that? I mean, my number one favorite, I'm going to talk about Texas right now. Texas, uh, Texas, a couple of years ago, determined that um, they've got a lot of different taxing jurisdictions. I think it's roughly 1,714. It's 1,700. I counted it. Yep. <laughs> so, even <laughs> better. More since I counted it last, but I counted 1,714. That's a lot. <laughs> so, and what they allow us to do as a business is I can elect, I can do, it's my choice as a business to collect at that seven, at 1,700 14 different jurisdictional rates, or I can collect at a single weighted average rate for the entire state. Yes. Um, as a small business, that's a no-brainer. My software will let me say if my customer is in Texas, it's going to cost me 8 or I need to charge 8%. Okay. I, I run into trouble when with my customers in Texas, I have to charge one of 1,700 different rates. I can't oh. do that in my software. That's why I need the specialized software. So Texas has gone out of their way to make this simple. And on the administrative side of it, I only have to register with Texas and ship my, a report to a single location, remit to a single location, and then they manage the administration and the apportionment of it afterwards. That's a far more efficient solution than what I have to do for, say, California or Colorado or Louisiana or Alaska. Um, and so that's... That's the number one policy recommendation that we make from both ACMA and NTU. And the reason for that is if they did nothing else, nothing yes. else, the bang uh -huh. for the buck on that solution would be huge. It would dramatically reduce the cost on every side. So no, not to manage the rates. That's you have to buy comprehensive software to manage the rates. Mm -hmm. One especially so it's a in Texas, where, you know, statute, like the state rate, you know, currently as we record today is 6.25%. They have a component that, you know, any of the locals can't add up to more than 2%, right? But there's could be five, you know, the Gila River District, the Fire District 1, the School District. There can <laughs> be so many of those small components that make up that 2% that yes, your max rate might only be 8.25%, but that's composed of six different places and six different allocations among the return that it has to go. Well, and, and the beauty of what Texas has done is they have not told any of the local jurisdictions that they don't have autonomy and control over their own local tax policies. Mm -hmm. So this doesn't step on them. It's not preemptive. It's really just an, it's an option to maximize efficiency. Well, um, and we do have... So that's... Yeah, we do have some clients where we might not make that recommendation because they they are so autonomous such that they might never... They might be more than a remote a remote seller one day, right? So then they wouldn't... They wouldn't... Right. You know, that, that, that consolidated rate issue, wouldn't apply. But they do already have a yeah. software in place... So they can 
you know, charge all those six different rates. And so that is something to think about. And even as part of that, you know, that single rate model is let's define what that means. If you were to put a remote employee in that state, that is not creating a business location that you would have, you know, that would break that boundary. So I think some definitions, I love the single rate, but also let's define what that means and give a little bit more leniency um, to those businesses that could apply. Right. So if I choose to move to Texas, you know, that doesn't violate the the ability to collect. Yeah. Remote employees are crazy though. I mean, that remote employee creates nexus in a state is an outrageous proposition period, in my opinion, because just the convenience of working remotely in this world, like our laws are not well defined. Nobody goes into the office as much as they used to anymore. So that to me is another advancement that we should be thinking about collectively um, to allow for mobility and not creating an additional tax footprint. I tell my clients, if you have a remote employee just for the convenience of them, because you love them, they're fantastic, and they decide to get married and move to another state, that's three to 5000 a year in tax compliance costs, tax returns, other things, and sales tax compliance. I mean, it ain't a cheap to have a remote employee. And I think a lot of people are agnostic, especially in the tech space, where you don't necessarily need anything more than a laptop and, and a Wi-Fi connection to let them live anywhere, which is wonderful for the employee experience, but not so great from a tax compliance experience. So I would marry the two things like one rate and you don't get nexus for these ancillary de minimis things in state it's the whole physical presence standard Uh, again you know we've we've actually had employees try to well not try we have had people apply for jobs at halstead and ask to work remotely and i mean this goes back 15 years and at every turn i'm familiar enough with what the consequences are of that decision that we've turned it down every yeah, single time but that's a bummer for you as a business mm-hmm. yeah yeah we're restricting your you know hopefully you have enough humans in arizona to fulfill your needs but you know to be open for business and allow for the right hiring why should you be limited by that so yeah. i think we have to marry that simple single rate to the business operations as well. So there needs to be both to protect business. Cause what we find is that we were mentioning, we have clients that want to, uh, they want to be agnostic about hiring and guess what other duties result of it. It's that that drives the nexus, not just the sale into a state via common carrier. So, yeah, well, and, and you know, these are, these are conversations about businesses that are much larger than Halstead too. We have We've got 24 employees right now. Um, well, you'd be surprised. What, what happens if <laughs> Joe wants to move to New Mexico? Do you let Joe go, who's been a longstanding employee and is a really great salesperson, right? So it's it's still yeah. while you know you might not be hiring internationally, you do still have people that want to continue to live their lives and are very loyal to your company and want to still maintain and be a part of it, right? Mm-hmm. So... It, it, it affects all kind of sizes, revenues, employee counts, you know, that, yeah. you know, that matter, right? We don't just get to value one type mm-hmm. of business over the other. Yeah. Well, and what I found when I start talking to legislators about this is, is that we're, as much as it seems like a single issue to us um, and realistically could be put into a single vehicle legislatively, it, it has, you've got different enemies in different places. And so consolidating them basically guarantees that you're going to have enough enemies from every corner on every issue that the bill isn't going to pass. So they really do have to be managed individually. Um, and, and a lot of that just comes down to which states 
are more concerned about sales tax versus which ones are more concerned about remote work versus which ones are concerned about digital taxation and on and on and on and trying to blend them all together. Our earliest efforts were aimed at kind of consolidating all of these things. And what we found time and again is that the conversation barely, very rarely got past one solution because somebody would say, well, that that's not going to work for us. And so we have tailored our entire discussion, especially with sales tax, to be just about sales tax and uh, economic nexus and not even talking about physical presence because that, again, it, it just muddies the conversation so dramatically that you end up with a lot of people saying, no, 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 we can't do this. Well, and one of your solutions that I'd like to talk about, um, you know, and all of these will get post, we'll share, but I don't know that we have enough time to talk about all of them because they're very, they're very interesting kind of conversation starters. Um, but one of your suggestions is one audit per year from a single designated taxing authority. What does that look like? Like, what, what do you mean by that? So we were audited several years ago by the Department of Economic Security in Arizona, and they, they manage our unemployment benefits at the state level. And the auto went fine. We got a clean bill of sale, but it was time consuming. Um, and the reality is until you actually get the final result, it's stressful. Now, that's a single agency within the state of Arizona. I could face it from multiple agencies within Arizona about very various subject matters. But sales taxes, there's a lot more data to pour over for sales tax than there is for unemployment remittances. So imagine we do about 24,000 transactions a year. And if you're coming to me to audit me for, let's say, our transactions into California, I've got to separate all that information just for California. Mm -hmm. Now, let's say I get an audit request from California and from Illinois and from Kentucky and from Wisconsin and a handful of them. I am going to be spending all of my time managing audits by mm -hmm. states that have the authority right now to audit me every single year. Yep. Now, I don't mind doing an audit each year. I mean, I don't really want to, but the fact of the matter is it's part of business. I don't mind doing one a year. I really don't want to do 50. Yeah. And so if we allowed for a single auditing agency, I mean, just think about the IRS, for example, and that's not who I would use for this particular instance, but the IRS can come in and they can look at us for income taxes at the federal level. It's a single audit. Um, am I ready to be audited by all 50 states or can the IRS adequately do the job enough, well enough so that these 50 states can say, okay, the IRS has done this, we'll accept their results, and we're going to work off of those. If we allowed a single taxing designated taxing authority or an office or something like that to manage audits for all 50 states, if one state initiated it, then they could look at all 50 states. It's still mm -hmm. going to be a reasonable amount of work for me, but it's not 50 times that amount of work. I give oh. them all of the information, and they do the audit, and then they come back and they say, okay, you're clean in 48 states, but these two you owe money to. And those uh -huh. states, then I can work out with them. Whereas if I have to do this with 50 states, I'm not going to get anything else done. And as a small business owner, I don't just do sales tax. I also do all of our accounting and our finance and our benefits administration and our payroll, our contract negotiation. I take care of our shipping contracts and I do our merchant services. I mean, there's a whole slew of things that I do and I need help on some of those things. Um, but I cannot manage 50 audits even one time, let alone year after year after year. Yeah, so and we have in, in the in the when you know we at the big four we work with very large multinational Fortune 500 whatever clients. They had dedicated staff in the sales tax department. They'd have like a supervisor, a preparer, and an audit supervisor who would handle all the audits. I mean, 
big business of America has borne the brunt of sales tax and tax compliance at a multi-state level. And they have dedicated resources, which they could kind of justify because they might be a billion or a hundred million. But even that kind of sucks, right? But now we brought all that down. Small business can't handle it. No way. So you're a hundred percent right that that needs to change and people have just sucked it up and paid for it. But mm -hmm. that cannot happen at small business level because you don't know how to prepare for it. It's like, I need someone to sit on the bench to handle my audit. I didn't get audited. Okay, good. Right. I mean, how do you use your resources wisely? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Well, and I, I didn't even know what a state and local tax department was five years ago. Right. <laughs> and, and of course, we speak in acronyms. So the first time I heard SALT department, I was totally caught off guard. I didn't know what they were talking about. Like Morton. Um, but when I, yeah, exactly. But when I found out what one was and the fact that companies have entire departments with localized expertise around the country that can manage this, I realized how underwhelming our resource pool was. Uh -huh. And I think if you're going to apply these, these obligations downward onto smaller and smaller enterprises, then the obligations need to be dramatically simplified, streamlined, and made uniform so that instead of a business with a person like me who's managing several different areas, having to understand 12,000 different sets of rules, then there is a simple, consistent set of rules that we have to understand. And again, going back to the question earlier, there are a lot of businesses that are out of compliance because they don't know. There are others that are out of compliance because they don't even have a clue as to how to manage this. And if you made it simpler, you're gonna get greater compliance. That's 100%. Couldn't agree more. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended, nor should it be relied upon as legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. You should consult with a competent professional to discuss specifics of your situation and the applicability of the information presented.